Merry Christmas and welcome to Prairie View. We're glad that you're here this morning. So this Christmas, we've been talking about the role players of the Christmas story. And what we mean by that are the people that we don't often pay as much attention to as we really should. Last week, as we looked at Joseph, we compared the role players to wrapping paper on Christmas morning. Occasionally, someone will notice the wrapping paper. Occasionally, someone will make a nice comment about how pretty it is. But in the end, the wrapping paper just gets tossed off to the side, never to be heard from again. You might also compare these people, these role players, to the extras in a movie. The extras typically don't say anything. They don't have any lines. Their names usually aren't even included in the credits at the end. And when we watch movies, we sometimes think that they're just there to fill space. They really don't have all that much purpose. However, when you think about it, the extras are actually extremely important to a movie. After all, can you imagine movies like these without the extras? Look at the pictures behind me. The first picture is from the movie Titanic. Might be a little bit difficult to see, but Titanic. Imagine the scenes of Titanic in that big ballroom. It'd be a little less believable if there were only people at one table. The scenes of people trying to clamor for lifeboats when the, sink, when the ship is sinking, a little bit less powerful and intense without all the extras. Consider the movie Rudy. What about this famous scene when Rudy gets lifted up on his teammate's shoulders? Be a little bit less inspiring if the stadium was empty, wouldn't it? What about the movie 300? The battle would be a little less intense if there were not any other warriors fighting besides the main characters. So sometimes we watch movies. We think the extras are just there to fill space. They really don't have any purpose. But in reality, the story wouldn't be nearly as powerful without them. So this morning, we're going to focus on the role players or the extras of the Christmas story. Specifically, we're going to look to shepherds and wise men. However, we're also going to see how they relate to someone else in the story who's the closest thing that we have to a villain. So with that, open up to Luke chapter 2, verse 8. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be found on page 732. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one home with you today. So Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. But before we do any reading, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this morning. We're thankful for this time. We're thankful that we can gather here in peace and that we can worship your son Jesus at this time of year. Um, God, we're just grateful for this time of year. Uh, the time of year where we're really kind of forced uh, to maybe see Jesus in places that we don't normally see him. Um, just yesterday, I saw a guy standing on the highway with a big sign on his chest that said, Jesus is the reason for the season. Um, and sometimes we think that kind of thing is hokey. Sometimes we think it's cheesy or can't possibly be effective. Uh, but it really is true uh, that this is all about your son. And so, Father, this morning, uh, this whole Christmas season, I pray that, would keep, that we would keep that in mind uh, and that we would be constantly looking to your son, Jesus, to reorient ourselves uh, as we try to figure out what it means to be your people and what it means to live in this world in a way that honors and pleases you. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. 
And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. So, Jesus is born to Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem. And right after that happens, an angel appears to some shepherds who are pretty close by. From what Luke tells us, these guys were just minding their own business. He doesn't indicate or communicate anything special about them at all. Nothing unique about these shepherds. They're just regular guys. Although actually, if anything, they might even be a little bit less than regular. A little bit less than normal. Most shepherds back then were peasants. Their profession could make them unclean by Old Testament standards. They were men who were hard-nosed, blue-collar, rough-around-the-edges kinds of guys. Now, what would an angel want to have to do with guys like that? Chapter 2, verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So, what does an angel have to tell a bunch of smelly shepherds? Well, he gives them an astonishing message. He uses phrases like, Good news! And great joy for all peoples. Good news. Great joy for all peoples. Now, many people back then claimed that Rome, Rome already brought those things. Many said that this was the greatest time in all of history, ushered in by the greatest empire in all of history, the kind of empire that will surely never fall. They even had a name for this time called the Pax Romana, which means the peace of of Rome. That's how good things were. Good news, great joy for all peoples, that had already come, right? Well, not according to the angels. Because this good news of great joy for all peoples, it's very different. This is good news because in the city of David, a savior, a messiah, a lord is born. Now again, many people would claim that Rome already met that need, too. Titles back then, like Savior and Lord, they were often reserved for Roman emperors. We already have a Savior. We already have a Lord, is what many people would say. We don't need a new king. We've already got the emperor. But the angel makes it clear that this new king is different. Because this new king isn't a tyrant on a throne. This king is not a warrior on a horse. This new king is a baby in a manger. Now the question then becomes, how will the shepherds respond? After all, surely that's a lot to take in. Well, we see their response in verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered 
at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. So, how did the shepherds react? Well, they react the same way Joseph did last week when he got a message from an angel. Just like Joseph, they obey. They go into Bethlehem, just like the angel told them to. They find the baby exactly the way the angel said they would. When the shepherds leave, they can't help but tell everyone about what they've heard and what they've seen. And everyone around them is amazed by it. They marvel at it. It causes them all to wonder. What do you think they're wondering? Well, they might be asking, what does this all mean? Now, they may have some thoughts. They may have some theories, some ideas of what this baby is all about, what this baby's going to do one day. But the truth is, they're probably not 100% sure. But one thing is clear for all the extras in this part of the story. Clearly, God is up to something, even if they're not totally sure yet what exactly it is. So, we look at shepherds, and a reasonable question to ask would be this when it comes to these extras. Of all people, why do these guys get to be some of the first witnesses of Jesus? Of all people, I mean, couldn't God have picked a little bit nicer of a welcome party? Couldn't he have picked people who maybe weren't quite as smelly or dirty or, quite frankly, undignified? After all, let's not forget that this baby is a king. He deserves a royal welcome. And yet, this isn't exactly royal. Why? Well, perhaps this is a preview of Jesus' ministry much later in life. Jesus spoke and he interacted with everyone. He spoke with rich and poor, royalty and peasants, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, adults and children, clean and unclean, insiders and outsiders, you name it. Jesus talked and interacted with all of them. However, in his ministry, Jesus does seem to have some kind of attraction to people like these shepherds. People who are lowly. The humble, the outsiders, the role players, the extras. These shepherds may not have the right pedigree. They may not have the best theological training. They may not have the most polished manners. But here's one thing that we do see from the shepherds. The shepherds can recognize a movement of God when they see it. And as we're about to see... That can't be said of every single person in the story. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1, looking at the second group of extras. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So we're introduced to the next set of role players, not the shepherds, but the wise men. 
Now, the wise men are somewhat mysterious, but we do learn a few things about them in this text. Number one, we learn that they're from a really long way away. We don't know for sure where they're from. It could be Babylon. It could be Persia. It could be Arabia. But either way, it's a pretty significant distance. And because these men are from so far away, we can figure out that it would have taken them quite a while to get you to Jerusalem. It wouldn't have been easy to just catch a flight from Babylon or Persia or Arabia. It took some time to get there. Thus, we can assume that their visit occurred sometime after the shepherd's visit, but while Jesus was still very young. Now, these wise men, we can certainly assume, aren't Jewish. They're coming from somewhere in the east. That's a pagan land. But we do also learn that they're interested in astrology. And they're very, very interested in this whole idea that astrology can somehow predict or signify important political events. So when they see a star over Israel, when they hear some vague rumors about some new king of the Jews, they can't help but have their ears perked up a little bit. So they go to Jerusalem. Now, the problem, of course, is that they don't know where to go from there. They don't know where this new king of the Jews is supposed to be born. So they ask the only Jewish guy they know, Herod. Maybe Herod will know. Maybe Herod can point us in the right direction. Well, there's one problem with that. Quite frankly, Herod is more like half Jewish. He's kind of Jewish. His mother was Arabian, but Herod never appears to have taken the Jewish faith very seriously in his life. But nonetheless, he's the closest thing that the wise men have to a king of the Jews. So they ask him where they should go. He doesn't know either. He doesn't read the Old Testament. So he asks the religious leaders where the wise men should be sent. What this all means. At this point, you'd have to think that Herod's pretty interested as well. Let's pick up in verse 5. They told him, the religious leaders, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they, were, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So, the religious leader shares some slightly disconcerting news with the current king of the Jews. They tell Herod that this new king has been prophesied about long, long, long ago. And that certainly can't be said of Herod. Herod's maybe starting to realize that for the first time in generations, 
God is raising up a real king of his people. God is raising up a true king of his people. And deep down, Herod knows that that's not him. So Herod sends the wise men to Bethlehem. He'd like to know where the baby is. He says he wants to worship the baby too. The wise men are guided by a star. The language of the passage indicates that this star was no natural phenomenon. There's something more happening here. The star specifically rests over the home where Jesus is. The wise men rejoice. They go into the home. They find the baby. They honor him just like the shepherds did. But then when they leave, something curious happens. As they're walking out the door to go back and tell Herod where they found the baby, they're warned. Go home. Don't go to Herod. Surely they have questions, just like Joseph did. Surely they have doubts, just like Joseph did. But nonetheless, they obey, even if it means taking the long way home. So, two groups of unlikely people, two groups of role players or extras, two groups of people with little to nothing in common. The first group, those guys are dirty, stinky, poor locals. The second group, they're foreign, exotic, presumably relatively wealthy pagans. And yet, in spite of their differences... In spite of the fact that they have so little in common, they respond the same way. Both groups honor the new king. Now again, they probably don't fully understand what this all means. They may have their theories. They may have some ideas. But what they do agree on, and what they do seem to know for sure, is that God is up to something with this baby. But what about Herod? What about our villain? How will he respond to this news of the child? We got a brief preview last week when Joseph was told to flee to Egypt. In verse 16, we start to see why. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So as we look at Herod, We see a response that is the polar opposite of the shepherds and wise men. You can't have any more different of a response than what Herod offers. Because to Herod, the birth of a rightful king, a real king, a true king of the Jews, for him, that's nothing to celebrate. For Herod, that is a threat. It's a threat so serious that Herod is willing to kill Because of it, he has every young boy under the age of two in Bethlehem and the surrounding area slaughtered. That's how serious he takes it. Now, you read that story and it's shocking. It's disturbing. It's unexpected. At least until you see Herod's track record. 
History tells us that Herod had numerous people executed the second he thought they were a threat to his power. He executed his first wife. He executed his mother-in-law. He even executed some of his own sons because he thought they were coming for his crown. If he's willing to kill his own sons for the sake of his own power, what's 20 or 30 babies from some redneck town on the other side of the tracks? Now, Herod doesn't realize it when he commits this despicable deed. But when he does this, he actually reminds us of someone else in the Bible. Someone from long ago. Because once upon a time, there was another king ruling over God's people, trying to hold on to his power and his control, who resorted to having babies killed. That king was called Pharaoh. Pharaoh tried to thwart God's plan for the sake of his own power as the Israelites toiled in Egyptian slavery. And yet in the end, God won that showdown. Here we have another king trying to do the same thing. The question is, what will happen this time? So as we look at these responses to the birth of Jesus, the shepherds, the wise men, and Herod, we see responses that are incredibly powerful and how different they are. The extras of the story, the shepherds and the wise men, they seek the new king out, they find him, and they honor him. Both groups. The villain of the story, Herod, he seeks the new king out. He doesn't find him. He doesn't honor him. In fact, he tries to kill him. And as we look at those different responses to the birth of Jesus, to the coming of the new king, the question that we ask ourselves could be relatively simple. How will we respond to God's appointed king? When we hear news of good news and great joy for all people, do we honor this new king or are we threatened by this new king? Because here's the thing about Herod. Even though Herod was an absolute maniac, no doubt about that, Herod was right about one thing. Herod was right to feel threatened by Jesus. He was right. Because Herod knew that there really is only one true king. There really is only one true savior. There really is only one true Lord. There really is only one true person who deserves the throne. And it's not him. It's not Rome. It's not emperors or other earthly kings. And even uneducated shepherds and pagan wise men, even they can figure that out. So, in the same way that Herod rightly saw Jesus as a threat to his crown, his power, his throne. The truth is that Jesus came for your throne and for my throne too. Because following Jesus means giving up the illusions that we cling to, the illusions of power and control and glory. Following Jesus means giving up our throne as kings and queens over our own lives, our own choices, our own desires, our own destiny. 
the things that we try and tell ourselves that we're in charge of. And as we look at this new king, the question is really pretty simple. What will we do? How will we welcome him? At Christmas, do we welcome him with open arms? Do we welcome him by giving up the throne of our own lives for him to sit on instead of us? Or will we cling to our thrones, cling to our power, cling to our control, cling to our glory at all costs? Men like Pharaoh and men like Herod, they did that. They tried to hold on to their power and their glory and their control and their crown. And they learned the hard way what they already knew deep down. That they never really were the true kings they thought they were. But what about you? Will you embrace the true king? Or will you keep living the lie that the throne is yours? The choice this Christmas season is for you to make. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that a new king has come. We needed a new king. Because the kings of this world and us, when we try to be kings of our own lives, we fall terribly short. God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you for good news of great joy for all peoples. Not just people who have it all together. Not just people who are dignified and all that stuff, but even for extras. Thank you that he died for shepherds and wise men, those people that others may refer to as outsiders. Thank you that he, respond, that he died for people like us who don't always honor him when we see him. God, thank you that a new king has come And he's ushered in a new kingdom, a kingdom of joy and peace, mercy and justice and grace. And God, we may not see those things right now as we look around at the world, even at the Christmas season. We still see anger. We still see violence. We still see greed. We see all the things that don't characterize your kingdom. And yet the one thing we know And the one thing we cling to and the one thing we can be sure of is that you're up to something. That your son has come, your son has lived, your son has died a sacrificial death for us. And upon his death, when many people thought that was the end of the king, that was actually just the beginning of his reign. God, we look forward to your king's return. We look forward to his kingdom's being seen in all the world around us. I pray that we would welcome your son with open arms this Christmas and we would welcome your arms again. Welcome him with open arms again when he returns in the future. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Again, we sometimes assume that when a king dies, that means the king lost. That means the reign is over. That means the reign is complete, but it's actually the exact opposite with Jesus. Because the king died, the kingdom is coming. Because the king died, 
you and I have forgiveness. You and I have grace. You and I have mercy. You and I have forgiveness. So this morning, if you have not yet made that decision, if you're still living as if you're the king of your own life, talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to pray with you, happy to answer questions, happy to do whatever it is that you'd like to do this morning.